everyone. Welcome to Teen Scientist. I'm your host, Raina Malhotra, and doing our audio engineering tonight is Sarit Lashinsky. Here on the show, I bring you stories of groundbreaking innovation in the STEM disciplines entirely from a youth perspective. We feature young researchers and respected experts in their fields at the local, regional, and national levels. I'm very excited for tonight's guest. Our guest is a high school student joining us all the way from Illinois, Elizabeth Niamwange. Welcome, Liz. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Thank you for having me. And thank you so much for making the time to join us on the show. Can we start off by you just telling us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so my name's Elizabeth. Um, I'm 16 years old and I'm a senior at the Illinois Math and Science Academy, which is a high school in Aurora. I'm really interested in programming, computer science, gender, um, and I work a lot in like both STEM and kind of social science field, kind of seeing how we can combine the two. And so you already mentioned your interest, but what kind of extracurricular activities or clubs are you involved in? Yeah, so I've done a lot of work with like programming in specific. So a bunch of personal projects, kind of like developing different types of um, devices, kind of like mobile applications. I've also done a little bit of work with the United Nations for kind of gender equality and economic development, um, like an emphasis on girls' education, and especially kind of post-COVID-19, helping women kind of regain their footing around the world. And a bunch of things kind of in that regard. So gender equality, STEM, seeing how exactly we can combine the two. And I've also done research in those topics, so seeing exactly different types of systems that exist for women around the world and using kind of computer science and math to understand these systems and hopefully dismantle them. And so you seem to be involving computer science and coding in these projects and interests of yours. When did you first learn to code? I first learned to code through a mandated class my sophomore year of high school. So I was 14. They kind of forced, since I go to a STEM school, they forced everyone to take this one introductory computer science class. It's one semester long. And when I started, I didn't like it very much. But I think kind of after that class, seeing all the applications computer science had, things I didn't really know, you know, existed before. That's when I really, really started to like fall in love with computer science, kind of understand the different applications and how I could use it. But it kind of started at school, a class that I was really forced to take. Why didn't you like it at first? I feel like computer science is, there's a learning curve that you have to get over to really understand computer science. And for me, I've never been a really, really analytical person or a really mathy person. And there were some people that definitely got it really fast. But for me, I think I was always kind of drawn to computer science because I liked the more creative aspect of it. And at my school, kind of the curriculum and how like they taught, it was just catered towards people with much more analytical minds, like kind of mathy people. Um, and I found that it was really hard for me to understand some of these topics. Like it kind of went in one ear and out the other. But the second I learned different types of applications to computer science, that's when it started to make a little bit more sense in my head. Yeah, I completely agree. I actually take coding classes myself, and I think I never really enjoyed it until I tried coding and programming outside of the classroom. Like, I think doing the assignments within the classroom has, is very restrictive, but being able to expand really showed me, like, the potential that it has. Do you have any recommendations for our younger listeners who might be interested in teaching themselves how to code and maybe how to get over that learning curve that you mentioned? Yeah, so the first thing I'd say is definitely have a lot of patience. Um, everyone learns at like very, very different rates and everyone learns in very, very different ways. And computer science is one of those things that I feel like you have to learn very, very specific to you. Some people are really great at one aspect of computer science and perhaps not another. So be really, really patient with the way you're learning. Be really, really consistent. Like work constantly. It's kind of one of those things where the more you practice, obviously, the better you're going to get at it. Um, and there's so much to learn. 
And I would also say try to find applications of computer science to things that really matter to you. I tell people all the time you can fall into this kind of tutorial-based learning trap where you're looking online and you're taking all of these courses and you're kind of seeing, oh, this is how I work with these structures and these algorithms and this data. But when it comes to kind of developing like an actual website, an actual program, you can't really do it because you've just been, you know, kind of guided towards it. So I would say find as many applications to computer science that you can kind of think of on your own time, things that really, really interest you. And try to make computer science as enjoyable as you can. If you really like art, there's some applications for computer science and art that are really, really interesting. Same with math, same with physics, same with sociology. So I'd say really, really try and find um, what you're interested in and see exactly how you can pair it with computer science. And I think it makes it that much more enjoyable and that much easier to retain. That is really great advice. And you've mentioned that your interests lie in sociology and gender studies. So how have you been able to integrate computer programming and computer science with these passions? So I've always been, I think, really interested in research because I go to a STEM school and a lot of kids are doing research. And I remember so my junior year of high school, they kind of have this program where you can start doing research. And I looked around a lot. I wasn't really that interested in computer science at the time, but I knew I was really interested in sociology. And so for me, I would look at a bunch of, well, I was looking at bio labs, I was looking at chem labs and physics labs, and there was absolutely nothing that I saw that I enjoyed doing. And I found this one social environment and health lab, which I didn't really even know existed before. And they were, it was kind of a sociology lab, and they were studying all of these different dynamic patterns for people in Chicago. So epidemiology, I'm looking at like the mechanical stress responses of economically vulnerable communities, different things like that. And they had all of these really, really cool approaches, but they didn't really do any type of mathematical modeling. They didn't really use any type of computer science. And I think that's kind of where I saw the first application. I kind of went into the lab and I had a little bit of experience with agent-based modeling on my own time. And I started to propose different ideas that maybe we can model these phenomena that they talked about and that they researched, kind of like to better understand exactly what it meant on a more analytical level. And I think that's kind of where I started to see that the application did exist. I was really, really interested in programming kind of in my free time and seeing, you know, you can model all of these really, really complex and dynamic systems. And I think from seeing different like sociology labs and different his labs that were kind of working with social issues and that gap and where I could kind of maybe offer my input and my computer science um, kind of advice and knowledge, that's where I really started to see the two kind of mesh. And I also saw that you created a device called Itana. Can you expand a little bit on this project and what exactly it does? Yeah, so I'm from Kenya and post-COVID-19, I became really interested in kind of gender equality from a third world perspective. So looking at kind of my family and women around the world and what exactly the COVID-19 pandemic meant for them. And for a lot of women, economic development is something that was just really stunted because of the pandemic. A lot of women were out of jobs. They stopped working. And it's this huge kind of trickle-down effect. And I became really, really interested in that. So I started studying it a little bit. I wanted to work with like finance and banking. But I realized that perhaps a bigger problem was identification. And a lot of women in kind of under-resourced environments don't have any form of identification. So no driver's license, no national ID card. And if they're either born without it or perhaps it gets lost. And sometimes there are these really big culture barriers that kind of don't really place an emphasis on them getting any. 
So I kind of was thinking about that, thinking of the digital identification gap, and I wanted to see if there was a way to create a device that could provide people, or more specifically women, in low-infrastructure environments where there's no electricity and no internet with the form of digital identification, because I felt like those were kind of the people that, you know, were missing it most and did it the most. And so I spent a lot of time working on the code for a device. Well, I didn't know it was going to be a device at first. It was kind of just the code for something. And I was thinking of making it into a mobile app. And then quickly I realized these women obviously don't have phones. So then I started working on kind of like the hardware for a device. And it kind of functions like a 2G phone. So you'd say like you would scan your fingerprint and it encrypts it into a cryptographic hash. And it sends it to this public blockchain with something similar to SMS. It's a little bit different, but kind of the same exact idea. Um, and it uses like blockchain, machine learning, AI, math-based signatures, different things like that. And it basically stores digital identification that women can then use to save and like send money, to vote, kind of any sort of country where you can use digital identification. This is basically valid. And I can imagine that whole process wasn't easy. What were some of the biggest challenges that you had to overcome during the process? So for me, when I learned to program, I will always say, like, I'm not the cleanest programmer. Um, I kind of learned in pretty sloppy ways. And I think a lot of the way that I know I just programmed in general, it was very creative and it was just very scrappy and there was kind of a lot going on. And this was a project where everything needed to be, you know, really clean and really cut. So I had to learn a lot. I spent, like, every free second I had on my computer coding to begin with. And it was kind of difficult because I had never worked with, like, some of these mechanisms before. I never, I didn't really know what blockchain was at the time. And, like, kind of the idea of, like, decentralized servers. And I never even knew if this would actually become, like, a device to, so, like, microcontroller applications, different things like that. And so I think then, again, even, like, learning computer science was a really big learning curve. But the idea of working on a physical device is an even bigger learning curve. And I think there was a lot that I had to learn. And there was a lot I had to, like, reach out and ask other people for help with, people who had experience with that. And I wasn't really used to that before. But it definitely, there were so many areas where I needed a lot of help and I was doing something perhaps entirely wrong or there was a, a much easier way to do it. And it just came from, I really needed to ask for a lot of help and I really needed to be really open with the way that I was designing this. And then at the end of the day, the idea of, who I'm designing it for. So I wanted to make something that was gender responsive. I was looking at, you know, I don't want to have to use internet or electricity. And so I kind of had to think a lot further outside the box than I usually do with kind of anything else I'm ever working on. And I think that was also kind of difficult too, because it forces you to remove perhaps what you know about, you know, all of these like applications, what you know about these devices and trying to start something entirely from scratch. So I think it was definitely kind of like a learning curve to get to exactly what I wanted to create. Yeah, definitely. And how long did it take you to get to the point where you are today? I want to say over maybe almost three years. A lot of it was the first like year and a half probably was just coding, like kind of learning like all the programming, working kind of behind the scenes on something I didn't even know was going to become a device. And then past that, I remember I applied to like to get a little bit of funding because I wanted to get like something on a server and then it kind of just blossomed from there. So I want to say around three years. Wow, that's a lot of commitment. Do you plan to, or is the device already on the market? So I'm going to Kenya in December, um, and that's kind of like our first little pilot. We have like a prototype that's entirely kind of complete, 
but we're really interested in seeing how exactly it interacts with these environments because we've only ever tested it in really controlled spaces, you know, where we do have electricity, we do have internet, and we can try to manipulate the environments where we want to use it, but we want to see exactly how it's going to react and then hopefully come back and make like adjustments, reiterations, and also see kind of what we need to do on the side with this kind of device. When you're deploying something in this type of environment, you also need to match like different educational curriculums, you know, help the woman in these areas understand exactly what you're using. So that's kind of what we're trying to figure out exactly how we're gonna go about that. That is a really exciting project. As I'm speaking with you, I'm quickly noticing a recurring theme of gender studies and sociology. And as a researcher and innovator in this field, what do you believe are the largest issues with gender inequalities? Yeah, for me, I've always really, really been interested in, well, one, girls' education and economic development kind of goes too congruently, and perhaps more so on the girls' education standpoint. So, like, post-COVID-19, we didn't really see it because, like, I mean, I live in the United States, but a lot of my family is still overseas, and there are so many girls who were taken out of school. They started working kind of when the pandemic hit, and now that you know, the kind of hard part is over. They're still working. Some of them got married. Some of them are pregnant. And the amount of girls that are out of school, it's kind of dangerous for everyone. You know, it's dangerous for both, like, their environment is dangerous for us because we're missing out on so many different perspectives and contributions that could have been really, really important. Like, when we're thinking about climate change, when we're thinking about any type of, like, economic development, these girls and these women have such unique perspectives and that come from literally just being alive in the areas that they are in the context that they live in that could really, really help us solve all of these problems. But when every single girl isn't getting, you know, 12 years of education, then we're kind of not only depriving ourselves of the opportunity to hear, you know, what their ideas are and solve these problems, but also kind of these girls from living, you know, the full extent that they can. And I think that for me, education is probably one of the biggest focuses of course, like economic development as well, because I think that those two kind of go hand in hand. But education, first and foremost, like I can kind of sit here and kind of peek in and try to see, you know, what problems perhaps I need to solve. But the only people that know what problems are affecting them most and how to solve them best are the women in those situations, which is why I believe, you know, like 12 years of education is so important for every single girl. And that's something that we should really, really be placing an emphasis on. Absolutely. That was a great response. And I think right now it's a great time to pause for a short break. But when we return, Elizabeth will continue to discuss her research and also provide some advice to our listeners. This is Raina Malhotra, and you're listening to Teen Scientist on WDIY. Are you interested in inspiring and informing future generations through WDIY's programming? A gift through your will, retirement plan, or estate plan is a wonderful legacy to leave to those that will need a trusted place to hear what's going on in the world. For information about naming WDIY as a beneficiary, please call 610-694-8100 or visit WDIY.org forward slash legacy. Tune up your week with a great variety of jazz music on WDIY, Monday through Friday nights from 9 to 11, offers many choices from the world of jazz, featuring traditional to modern styles, plus Swing Sunday at 5 p.m. and Improvisational Jazz on the Bridge, Sunday nights at 10 p.m. Listen for new releases, interviews with artists, and information on upcoming performances right here on WDIY. Welcome back. I'm Raina Malhotra, and this is Teen Scientist on WDIY. 
Joining us today is Liz Nimwanga, a senior from Illinois, and we just finished speaking about your work that addresses issues in gender studies and sociology through computer programming and other technologies. I'd now like to transition more into your actual research experiences. When did you first get started with scientific research? Was this something that you were involved in from a young age, or did it start more recently? Definitely something I was involved in more recently. I went to like a STEM school my sophomore year of high school, and I was surrounded by a lot of people who had done scientific research. Before, I was really kind of interested in the idea of like social activism and things like that. But I decided to kind of try my hand with research, and I started off in a random lab, and it kind of kind of funneled me into where I'm doing research now. And I think it's really interesting that you started recently because at least from the people that I've met, it's really common to see people who've been involved in science and research from a young age, and I think that can be really intimidating. So do you have any advice for any people who think it might be too late to get started in research, even if they're just still in high school? Yeah, definitely. I've been surrounded by a lot of people, um, like at competitions and things like that, who have done research for what seems like forever. You know, they're very accomplished. Like, they've published papers. They've done all this amazing stuff. And I think that it definitely is really intimidating to see people have so much kind of time, like, working with this type of thing. But what's really important to recognize is that when you're doing research, like, everyone is bringing something very, very different to whatever field they're working in. Let's say I could have probably, if I liked bio, I could have done bio research. But I think that the most important thing about research is kind of almost like bringing your unique perspective to kind of whatever question you're asking. And perhaps like when you're in high school, maybe you can't really have that type of freedom. But I still think that you have freedom over, you know, where you're picking to do research, who you're working with, like how exactly you're talking to like your mentors, your professors, your advisors, and what you're doing with the opportunity to begin with. And I think Research is definitely something that's for everyone. You just need to find specifically what your thing is. And I feel like once you do find it, you really can't like think about, you know, oh, other people have been doing it for longer than me because it's something you kind of get so immersed in and you really, really start to enjoy. So I'd say definitely start and try, you know, whatever age you're at because it's something that's so, so rewarding in so many different ways. And speaking from personal experience, the projects that I first began working on were completely different from what I'm now interested in today. So I want to ask, how have you been able to narrow the scope of your work into something that's kind of focused on what you are really interested in? How are you able to pick that one area or field that you think you can excel in? Yeah, the first lab I worked at was actually a neuroscience lab. Um, and it was quite literally because I was look. I went into do research, and I didn't like physics. I didn't like bio, and I was kind of trying to narrow it down. And I was interested in like cognitive neuroscience a little bit, so I decided to go that route. And while I did it, and it taught me a lot about like how to do research in general, I didn't love it. Like I didn't find myself really interested in the topic. I you know I'd read papers. I didn't really enjoy the discussions we were having, and while I thought it was interesting, it's not something that really, really excited me. And I feel like, for me, kind of that, like, aha moment was I was really interested in things outside of research. I was really interested in, like, gender, race, and, like, intersectionality of it all, and I didn't know that there was a kind of research that could deal with that or that could work with that. And so I did a lot of, you know, work kind of looking around and seeing, you know, do these like sociology labs exist and what exactly are they doing? Perhaps where can I, 
you know, use like my knowledge to kind of mesh with it. And that's where I feel like I kind of hit where I, I wanted, you know, to work. And for me, I'd say I went through a lot of labs. You know, I talked to a lot of different people and I've done research in like a lot of different areas. But I feel like I finally figured out not only what I want to do research in, but perhaps like, you know, what I would want to go into when there was a field or when I was working at a lab and I like, I couldn't put the work down. Like I wanted to do it all the time. Like if anyone brought up, you know, like, what are you doing? What are you doing? I would talk about it for hours if I got the chance. And I was just so infatuated with the work that I was doing. I feel like that's kind of when I knew that, you know, I was working in an area that I really, really enjoyed and one that I was really, really passionate about. And you have been involved in a number of research programs, most notably the Research Science Institute, or RSI. For our listeners who aren't familiar, RSI is a prestigious summer research program held at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, where participants can experience intensive classes and thorough research. Liz, can you tell us about your RSI project? So I was working at, well, RSI has like a bi-directional matching process. So you tell them, you know, what you're interested in, and they try to pair you with this huge network of, you know, professors that they have. So I was working at Harvard Medical School, with a professor, I guess he was also like a teacher. He had like a JD, a PhD, an MPH. Um, and it was this pharmacoepidemiology lab. And it was also this like prenatal kind of lab. And so what we were looking at is adherence to antihypertensive medication, but antihypertensive kind of treatment as a disorder of pregnancy. So when a lot of women are pregnant, then they develop hypertension, and a large you know, amount of those women are black. And so we were looking at the patterns of the women who adhere to these different types of medication, how that varies by social, um, kind of like status, demographic, race, all of these different things, and hopefully by you know trying to understand exactly how these different patterns of adherence vary, we can inform like stakeholders, we can inform legislators on how to better adjust laws and policies to support marginalized communities, especially with prenatal care. And what are the long-term applications of this work? So we, um, well, I guess just for the United States and kind of for everywhere in general, it's really, really important to make sure that kind of like the next generation, like the people we're bringing into this world are healthy and that they're safe. But right now there are huge disparities in like maternal mortality, basically. And so there's a lot of research in my lab. I've done a lot of research on what exactly happens when women have hypertension and don't take their antihypertensive medication? And they found that the effects often range from inconvenient to fatal. And the thing is, since a lot of the women who have hypertensive disorders or pregnancy are black, that means that black women and black kind of babies are dying at a disproportionately high rate. And so that's exactly what we were looking at. We were trying to pinpoint exactly where something's getting lost in translation between perhaps like these different groups of people, you know, like by like maybe region, by race, by class, maybe by like doctor and by patient, um, and seeing exactly, you know, where these discrepancies are happening and pinpoint them so then we can inform the legislators on how to better approach this. And it's all part of kind of a bigger project um, to create these social models of, you know, prenatal health care and pregnancy to understand exactly for maybe not just hypertensive disorders of pregnancy, but different disorders of pregnancy, how we can make sure that all women are getting the exact same care and receiving the exact same treatment. Wow, that is a really fascinating area and project of research. And now regarding the actual application process, do you have any advice for students who might be interested in applying? Yes, I talk to students who want to apply all the time. 
And for me, I feel like my application was kind of unconventional. Like when I applied, I didn't really know how prestigious RSI was. I definitely didn't meet the stats threshold or anything. But like I said, I feel like I was just really, really, really passionate about the type of research that I was doing. And I'd say capitalize off of that. I get a lot of questions that are like, oh, I got a B plus at this subject. Like, will I get it? And will I get in? I'll say, I guess I had multiple Bs. And it really doesn't matter. I feel like they're looking for kind of scientists who are going to like take this opportunity, or researchers who are going to take this opportunity and make the absolute best of it. And they don't want duplicates of each other. And so I would think everyone just has very, very unique research experiences. So do your absolute best to make sure that, you know, if someone's reading through your application, they can most definitely say, like, this is screaming, like, you know, whoever this is. Like, this is, like, it shows your personality, it shows what you care about, and it's really something that, you know, perhaps those people who are reading it are sitting there and thinking, we want them here because they're going to come here and they're going to do amazing work. So I'd say definitely focus on that. Don't focus on the stats part too much and focus more so on perhaps like emphasizing with this opportunity, how are you going to make the best of it? Like, how are you going to be an asset to the RSI experience? Because at the end of the day, they're looking for people who are going to come there and do amazing work and honestly make them look good. So I kind of think with that mindset when you're writing your essays, um, when you're trying to portray yourself as like a researcher, as a person and as a scientist, think really, really um, think long term and, you know, think personably. That was a helpful piece of advice. And I want to ask, because you definitely seem to be keeping yourself busy, do you have advice on how you manage to balance these extracurricular activities with your academic life simultaneously? Yeah, so I'm a senior now, so it's a little bit better. But my junior year, I will say, was very, very busy. And I feel like maybe it took me like being like stretched so thin to kind of realize um, exactly, you know, what matters and kind of what doesn't. For me, I think my high school experience has been kind of unconventional in the way that I, my, like, I sourced in my freshman year of high school. Um, my whole entire sophomore year was online, and, like, my grades were, you know, not great the whole entire time. So it was, I was lucky for me because I kind of went through junior year with the idea that um, at the end of the day, like, I care about my grades and my grades really, really matter but I care about the work that I'm doing outside of school much, much more. And I think that's what really, really helped me kind of going through all of this. I think the second that you take that huge emphasis off of like grades and SAT scores and perhaps just the work that you're doing, it makes like that much of a difference. And I'd also say just remember like the little stuff. Like I'd say, like especially now, like I love going, like I go to a boarding school now, but I love going back to my old school and like, I go to all of the football games. Like, I talk to my friends from my old school constantly. And I think it's really, really important to maintain those different types of connections because it can get really, really lonely. But I feel like by surrounding yourself by people who um, just, like, remind you exactly of, you know, past, like, all of this, like, hustle and, you know, like, bustle of like, everything that's going on, it keeps you kind of grounded and it keeps you kind of feeling better because, obviously, you know, stuff happens. But I think just making sure that you have a very good kind of clear line between of, you know, when it's time to work and when it's time to, you know, relax and sit there and have fun because everyone needs to take breaks. So I think just making sure that you are very, very clear on that and not, you know, feeding into this whole idea of hustle culture, I feel like that's really, really important even for high school students. Yes, definitely. And I completely agree. Uh, I want to ask, what are your major plans for the near future? I know you're a senior, and I assume you're going through the entire college application process, but um, what else do you have in store for your future? 
So I am applying to a bunch of colleges right now. I'm applying as a computer science and then sociology major. So not exactly sure, you know, how that kind of takes place in different colleges. But I'm really, really interested in kind of like a, so like a ton of kind of what I was working on on different devices like that. I'm really interested in probably post-college. I'd want to work in probably like technology engineering, but more so like humanitarian technology, like gender responsive engineering, different stuff like that. And I still think like now I'm really, really interested in those different types of projects. So there's a lot of stuff that's been kind of like going on in my head, kind of projects that I would love to work on, but I know how taxing it can be to like start a project. So they've kind of just been sitting on the side. And for now, I feel like I'm kind of trying to pick up, you know, perhaps what might be the next thing that I work on. Um, because like I have a lot of people helping me out now, which is great because now they can kind of like take control of these separate areas. Um, and it kind of gives me a little more space to think about, you know, what do I want to do next? Awesome. Well, I wish you the best of luck of everything you want to do in the future. Lastly, where can our listeners go to learn more about you and your work? Yeah, so um, I'm very active on social media, and I also have everything on my personal website. It's my name, Elizabeth, and N-Y-A-M-W-A-N-G-E.com. And all of my personal projects are on there, all of my contact info, everything like that. And that's usually kind of where I store you know, everything in one big spot. So probably there. Well, thank you so much for joining us this evening and telling us a little bit about your amazing work. It's inspiring to see other high school students make such powerful impacts in very unique ways. Thank you so much for having me. It was so nice speaking with you. Absolutely. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in for tonight's episode of Teen Scientist on WDIY. I'm Raina Malhotra, and I'll see you next time.